Welcome, everybody, to the Rothermere American Institute for the annual Esmond Harmsworth Lecture. You're very warmly welcome. And to those of you who, for whom this is the first visit to the RAI, an especially warm welcome. Uh, this lecture is, exists because of the generosity of Esmond Harmsworth, to whom we're immensely grateful for making it possible. And it's a huge pleasure to have to talk to us this afternoon a most distinguished colleague from the University of East Anglia, Christopher Bigsby, who is going to talk upon the subject on which he is so deeply expert and has recently written. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, in 1965, Arthur Miller uh, was the victim of a death threat. Uh, the letter insisted that Jose Quintero, who directed uh, Eugene O'Neill's Marco Millions at Lincoln Center, should be fired. If he wasn't, then Harold Clerman, Miller's producer on All My Sons, would have 10 days to get his affairs in order before committing suicide. If he failed to do that, the letter said, I hereby swear on the graves of my mother and father that I will murder Arthur Miller. It was signed Alter Ego, or The Establishment, and was written in the regulation Psychopath Green Ink. And it's tempting to feel that Alter Ego was an American theatre reviewer, certainly as judged by the response of such reviewers to Arthur Miller's work in America for the next several decades. For a curious fact was that if one madman wanted him dead, there were those in America who thought that he already was dead. Silent as far as the theatre was concerned for nine years after a view from the bridge, that's between 1955 and 1964, he scored a real success in 1968 with the price, but thereafter play after play in America failed. An American reviewer of the British production of The Last Yankee in 1993 felt obliged in her review to tell her American readers that Miller was indeed alive. But for many, he had seemed to be dead for some time. When he did die in 2005, the New York Times passed the task of writing the obituary to its third-string reviewer. And her remarks weren't wholly complimentary. His reputation, she said, rests on a handful of his best-known plays, and she noted that at one moment he was hailed as the greatest living playwright and at another as a has-been. This is his obituary. The right-wing New Criterion magazine headed its obituary, Arthur Miller, Commie Stooge. The equally right-wing National Review marked the moment by attacking what it called the darling of the left, husband of Marilyn Monroe, and self-appointed moralist, and the praise of those who mourned his passing in obituaries that were, it said, sanctimonious twaddle, pent-up liberal self-righteousness. The more sober Wall Street Journal helpfully explained, Arthur Miller was not well-liked and with good reason. You have to keep saying, these are the obituaries of <laughs> Arthur Miller. In 1984, the American critic Gerald Baldman, writing in the Oxford Companion to American Theatre, summed up Miller's career in a single sentence. Miller was a firmly committed leftist whose political philosophizing sometimes got the better of his dramaturgy. 
1984. Miller wrote 17 plays in the 50 years after A View from the Bridge in 1955. Just four of them made it to Broadway. Several never even made it to New York. And somehow one of the greatest American playwrights had been written out of the American narrative, as he'd been declared, of course, un-American by the House Un-American Activities Committee and the Congress of the United States, and had his passport, sign of his Americanness, withdrawn by the State Department. So why did this come about, and why, when his reputation as a writer of new plays was fading for the last 37 years of his life, was he celebrated in this country? There is um, a Tennessee Williams play in which a gypsy woman's virginity is restored with every full moon. It's a good trick if you can pull it off. And in a sense, though, it's a very American trick because Miller lived in a country that leans into the future, an immigrant country in which the past is precisely what has to be transcended. That wasn't Miller's position. He spoke of the tongue of history being torn from the mouth of Americans. As he remarked, there seems to be no past in America. To him, the denial of the past was a denial of moral logic and identity alike. Hence the electrical discharge between 1692 and 1953 in the crucible. To deny the past was to snap the spine of morality, to dislocate act from consequence and hence deny the fact of responsibility for that past. And without responsibility for one's actions, where could identity be said to reside? This playwright whose characters were inclined to shout out their names however equivocal, the gesture, I'm Willie Loman, I'm not a dime a dozen, give me my name, Eddie Carbone, Eddie Carbone, Eddie Carbone, I am John Proctor still, and there's the wonder of it. Willie Loman, Miller once said, was trying to write his name on a block of ice on a summer's day. To many American critics, though, as a result, he seemed to be sidestepping the present they rejected the analogy at the heart of the crucible, insisting that 1692 had nothing to do with 1953. There were no witches, they said, while there were communists. Though, as Miller pointed out, to declare that there were no witches in colonial Salem would have been to deny God's word, not on the whole a wise course, since the state then was defining reality and it enforced its interpretation with the gallows, the ultimate dangling modifier. American critics were bewildered with the frequency with which he turned back to the Depression, which seemed to have no lessons to teach to a society getting daily richer. His critique of the American dream, they suspected, was a product only of his Marxism, or what a number of his critics prefer to call his Stalinism. What his critics asked in the 1960s did he have to say about the present, the Vietnam War, for example? That, Miller explained, was precisely why he turned to the past. This man who attended one of the first teachings over the Vietnam War and personally flew to Paris to negotiate with the North Vietnamese. The Vietnam War, he insisted, had a prehistory. At a peace rally, he read out a poem which he'd written which traced back from the American involvement to the history of French colonialism, not something that they were very inclined to do during the Vietnam War. He even made a film 
turned play about Vietnam called The Reason Why, but it's virtually unknown and therefore forms no part of the assessment of the man and his work. From his point of view, though, incident at Vichy, set in Vichy, France, uh, and staged in 1964-5, bore on these events, as did The Price, produced in the pivotal year of 1968, a play which looks back to the 1930s and there finds the origins of present pain. He hoped his stress on the past would offer a lesson to those who responded to current political issues as if they had no precursors, no rational connection to past errors, as if America, like his characters, believed it could simply walk away from the consequences of its actions. The question his own drama asked, he explained, was what happens when you can't walk away? For Miller, as for William Faulkner's Gavin Stevens, the past is not dead. It's not even the past. There were though, also those in the theatre who showed a disdain for the past, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, the age of off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, and a determined experimentalism. The past, Miller lamented, went out of the theatre. No more masterpieces, declared Antonin Artaud, an inspiration for many off-Broadway groups who rejected earlier dramatic models, seeking to construct their experiments on a burned-over land. The past was invoked by them at the level of myth, but otherwise it was the presentness of theatre that compelled that and a dedication to experimentalism in which they found Miller lacking and irrelevant. From All My Sons onwards, critics had identified him as a resolute realist uh, to some a natural expression of his left-wing views. In the 1950s, after all, the CIA was busy subsidizing abstract expressionism as the American challenge to socialist realism, part of the culture wars. And the ideological criticism of Miller's plays remained remarkably persistent, hence those hostile obituaries, which are reaching back to the left-wing nature of Arthur Miller and the Marxism of Arthur. He hadn't been that for decades. But the dismissal of him as an incorrigible realist, kind of leftover playwright, whose works belonged in a thrift store, evidence of outmoded fashions, was in part a result of ignorance of his work. For many years, I could have made good money by betting Americans that they couldn't name a single play by Miller written after 1968. I might still be able to make a buck or two. Knowing that few were aware of such works because they'd had such abbreviated runs or failed to make it into New York where reviewers might give them prominence. Nor were these later plays taught in academe. His plays apparently not lending themselves to structuralist, post-structuralist, post-modernist, deconstructionist, feminist, post-feminist, transnationalist. The study of American drama itself always having been marginalised. Robert Brustein famously published an article entitled Why American Drama is Not Literature. Uh, one woman at an Ivy League college, who I know, on saying that she wanted to write her dissertation on Miller, was told she would be betraying her intelligence and her gender. One of Miller's family explained to me what it was like. Very often reviews were bad, and I dreaded them. I grew up the father who was failing all the time. Every time he put something up, people knocked it down. He had doubts about himself as a writer. He was working so hard, and they were just brush it away. The litany of Miller's failed American productions is as depressing as it was consistent. 
After the fall ran for 59 performances. Incident at Vichy, 99. Creation of the world and other business, 20. Bear in mind there are about eight performances a week, 20. The Archbishop's ceiling ran a month, which means 32 performances. Never made it to New York. The American clock ran for 20 performances. Broken glass, 73, losing 700,000 of the 800,000 invested in it. Resurrection Blues and Finishing the Picture ran for a month each and never made it to New York. Others like 2 by AM, renamed Two-Way Mirror, and Mr. Peter's Connections never made it beyond off-Broadway. As a result, critics and readers were unaware of the metaphysical conundrums at the heart of the Archbishop's ceiling, the vaudeville of the American clock, the colliding styles of Ride Down Mount Morgan in which actions are replayed and fantasized. They failed to register the tone poem, which is Elegy for a Lady, the disintegrating selves at the heart of some kind of love story, and I think some of you are sitting there thinking, no, I couldn't have named those either, so I would have got some money from you. Mm -hmm. The satirical fable that is Resurrection Blues. In other words, his post-1968 plays were largely ignored or dismissed. In fact, Miller had been committed to experiment from his early versed drama for radio, Thunder from the Hills, about which critics knew nothing. I need to say that again. He wrote a verse drama for radio in America. Um, and indeed, he wrote about 30 radio plays. That's where he made his money at first, before he ever made it in the theatre. And although he despised quite a lot of those plays, there were one or two of them that were really good, including this one, uh, which starred Orson Welles. Um, the fable that was the man who had all the luck, his first um, mainstream play closed after four performances and wasn't seen again by Americans until it was published by an English publisher and revived in England by the Bristol Old Vic, a production which transferred to London. In other words, Arthur Miller has been thoroughly misread. The British playwright Peter Nichols once remarked to Broadway audiences that they were severely under-rehearsed. Uh, that is, they got no point of reference, having never seen Chekhov or Ibsen or Strindberg. And much the same could be said of Miller's works. Those who pigeonholed him as a realist did so because they had seen none of the plays which failed to conform to that description. Miller was also, of course, frequently out of tune in the Grand Symphony of America. He often wrote against the American grain, although you could argue that is the American grain. Though his script for a film supposedly designed to celebrate the American soldier in the Second World War was never used, his account of researching it, published under the title Situation Normal, in 1944, turned out to be not a celebration but an, of a, but an attack on American values in the middle of the war. The normal situation in America's cities, he said in this book that was supposed to celebrate the fighting man and American democracy, was that people were divided along lines of class and religion with rich and poor, white and black, Jew and Gentile. The individual, he said, was engaged in what he called the stale, deadly competition with his fellow man for rewards unconnected to his human needs. And this was Miller, the Marxist, because, of course, there was nothing the American fighting man wanted more than to go back to the world that he was describing there. Fighting man longed for the capitalist way that Miller seemed to abhor. At the same time, and again with America at War, he wrote a novel, never published, that was as direct an attack on American racism as you will have read, outside of uh, Richard Wright's Native Son, a book which he deeply admired, incidentally. In 1945, he published a novel about anti-Semitism, written during the war. But that anti-Semitism wasn't in Europe. 
It was an attack on anti-Semitism in America, and specifically in New York, where it was published. His first great play, All My Sons, again written during the war they produced after it, was about a war profiteer. Death of a Salesman, written on the verge of the greatest boom in American history, was an attack on a version of the American dream, just when people wanted, more than anything, to reclaim the American dream as they emerged from war. In 1952, when free speech was under threat, he staged his version of Ibsen's An Enemy of the People and did so at the behest of two actors who had just been blacklisted. And he followed it with The Crucible, which suggested that America was reverting to the days of witch hunting and as if to prove the thesis, the actress playing Abigail was subsequently blacklisted. The play had an abbreviated run. Critics attacked him. It was, he was, it seemed, un-American in other ways than that proposed by the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Unless you believe American attacks on him came only with the crucible, All My Sons was banned from production on US bases in Europe as an attack on capitalism. The New York Journal American described it as a pro-red play. New Leader magazine said that to send it abroad would be to play into the hands of America's enemies. An FBI informant got hold of the script of the film and sent a report to J. Edgar Hoover labelling it anti-family and anti-capitalist. The road version of Death of a Salesman was picketed by the American Legion. doesn't take much to get them to picket anything, but the studio which made the film famously also made a 20-minute film to go be distributed with it, saying how wonderful the life of a salesman was. <laughs> Nor did attacks only come from... The right. There were those on the left who became Trotskyites and who saw Miller as a Stalinist, and their reviews reflected this. Eleanor Clark, who was actually married to one of Trotsky's secretaries, dismissed Death of a Salesman as the product of a fellow traveller, a play which attacked our particular form of money economy. This is Death of a Salesman she's talking about. And when Miller made the mistake of attending a peace conference at the Waldorf Astoria in 1949, Organised by what, by what was patently a communist front organisation, you only needed the word peace in it to know that it was the communists who were actually organising it. He drew down the fire of what came to be called the non-communist left, his photograph duly being published by Life magazine as a subversive. The New York Journal American claimed that those attending were traitors on the side of Soviet Russia, and since Miller was one of them, death of a salesman now stood, it, it explained, exposed as a work which strikes a shrewd blow against the values that have given our way of life its passion and validity. And I have to keep reminding you, it's talking of death of a salesman here. If you think that, America, that Miller commanded the respect of American intellectuals, or even drama reviewers, it's worth considering what a number of them had to say about his work. And I'm afraid I'm just going to give you a number of quotations, because even now, having written it, I'm still amazed myself. Uh, even his breakthrough play, All My Sons, which went on to win a major prize, was rescued by a single reviewer, Brack Books Atkinson. Otherwise, the New York Herald Tribune dismissed it as a dud, and the Daily News review was headed, Little Happens in Backyard Drama. Mary McCarthy, who attended the Waldorf Conference to denounce Miller and others, attacked Death of a Salesman, a work which Stanley Kaufman, writing in The New Republic, found a flabby, occasionally false work. By 1971, Kaufman was referring to Miller as all munched out, while the following year he said that going to Arthur Miller's new play is like going to the funeral of a man you wish you could have liked more. The occasion seals your opinion because there is no hope of change. 
There had always, he said, been two Millers. The great dramatist in general opinion and the much lesser one, quote, in the opinion of the best critics, among whom he counted himself. Uh, and he suggested, however, that his international success, which was otherwise rather baffling to him, was because he improved in translation, which left the British in a rather equivocal <laughs> position. Walter Kerr referred to him as wrapping about himself the cloak of seer, prophet, founding father, and dormitory prefect. So it was difficult to know whether it was proper to applaud or to genuflect before leaving the theatre. In 1964, writing seemingly inevitably in Partisan Review, which consistently attacked him, Susan Sontag commented on the intellectual weak-mindedness of After the Fall, saying it was belaboured, trite, wretched. Speaking of the price, Martin Gottfried, who later wrote a biography of Miller, saw it as old-fashioned, carelessly written, displaying Mr Miller as a slackening artist. It may very well be, he said, sadly, that the playwright has had his day. The play he was talking about was the third longest-running play in Arthur Miller's career, incidentally. William Dean Howells once remarked that anyone can make an enemy, the problem is to keep him. <laughs> And this was a skill that Miller had evidently acquired with respect to Robert Brustein, a major drama reviewer and head first of the Yale and then the Harvard drama departments, who over several decades conducted a sustained critique amounting almost to a vendetta. He accused Miller of turgid naturalism, of focusing on psychological man instead of turning toward the void, a gesture at once potentially liberating and fearful. In other words, Miller was not Samuel Beckett. He wasn't a paid-up member of the avant-garde, which Brustein was celebrating. For Brustein, Miller's talent was minor. After the fall was scandalous, incident of Vichy was an old dray horse about to be melted down for glue. In retrospect, he thought even death of a salesman um, was unimportant. He described it as a social realist melodrama about a man who is a victim of a ruthless, venal and corrupt system flawed by Miller's failure to tell us what Willie Loman sells. <laughs> and incidentally, that was also one of Mary McCarthy's complaints. Anyone know what Hickey sells in The Iceman Cometh? Because he's a salesman. I'm hardly incapacitates the play in some way, and Miller had some very interesting things to say about what was in those suitcases. For Richard Gilman, Miller was a narrow realist with a hopeless aspiration to poetry and a moralist with greatly inadequate equipment for the projection of moral complexity. Only once, he said, in Death of a Salesman did his powers prove commensurate with his theme so that he was able to compose, quote, a flawed but representative image of an aspect of our experience. On one other time, in The Crucible, his deficient language achieved a transcendence through its borrowing from history. And that, said Richard Gilman, quote, is literally everything. A view from the bridge was simply dismal. Incident of Vichy was windy, dated sermon about guilt and responsibility. And it's revealing and something of a shock to recall the virulence of the attacks on Miller, who was alternately seen as an antiquated irrelevance and a threat. An essay by Philip Rath was called The Myth of Arthur Miller's Profundity. For the director and critic Herb Blau, writing a decade later, even his success in England could be accounted for by the enthusiasm of socialist directors, whose engagement with him was, in simpler vein, the association of a more objective kind of truth with the urgencies of social political theatre. Delmore Schwartz 
wrote in a review for Commentary, another magazine which consistently attacked Miller, he wrote of the retarded conscience of Arthur Miller, the ball player for whom Marilyn Monroe consented to be circumcised. As late as 1996, Leslie Fiedler, himself a former Trotskyite, described him as an overrated playwright whose dramas were as devious as his public life. And in some sense, this all came to a head in 1987 when Miller published his autobiography, uh, autobiography Time Bends. Time magazine found the book's structure odd and frustrating, and in a sentence that confirmed Miller's worst fears, insisted that Miller remains fascinating because he fulfilled an almost universal male daydream he married Marilyn Monroe. That was a review, Time magazine. The Times complained of a lack of any reference to Yves Montand, whose adulterous relationship with Marilyn had played its role in ending Miller's second marriage. The reviewer reiterated a familiar criticism of the Crucible, familiar, that is, from the attacks from the non-communist left. What does not come out here, it said, in Mr. Miller's 1953 play about the Salem witch trials is that behind McCarthyism and the unscrupulous and publicity-seeking Hewitt investigations lay not giggling girls and a widespread belief in witches, but a genuine international conspiracy that threatened Europe at the time, even if it didn't threaten the United States. Mr. Miller has never been moved to write a play comparable to the novels 1984 or Darkness at Noon. Now, for Miller, this must have had a weary sound as he was denounced for failing to embrace a militant anti-communism early enough. Darkness at noon, after all, had been distributed by the British Foreign Office. While Kersler travelled America in 1948, urging radicals to support the anti-communist cause precisely when Miller had been voting, voting for the communist-backed Henry Wallace as president. He was the third-party candidate in 1948. Nonetheless, the Times offered him a much more comfortable read than the reviews in Vanity Fair, The New Republic, and his old enemy commentary. Vanity Fair just dismissed the book, saying Arthur Miller's sermonettes come straight from the gassy void. So that was Vanity Fair. James Tuttleton, incidentally an academic uh, as well as a reviewer, in commentary, of course, launched an all-out attack. He found the book full of what he called psychoanalytic palaver, which extended to his approach to politics, are we seriously believed, to believe, Tuttleton asked, that our century's horde of revolutionary Marxists who have destroyed whole societies and murdered huge populations have been merely the maladjusted products of eatable problems with dad? Or that this explains the Marxist political motivation of guilt-ridden middle-class intellectuals like Miller? The weakness of his recent work, he said, creation of the world and other business, the archbishop's ceiling, American clock, danger of memory, had left him, quote, wondering whether his appropriation of this Freudian structure of ideas might not have drained his powers as a playwright. It was a response that Miller had feared. It was as if his decision to write an account of his life had woken those hitherto content to let him slide into obscurity, which is where previously they seemed content for him to be. 37 years after abandoning his Marxism, he was still being assailed for it. The listing of his plays was the dismissal of nearly 20 years of his work and a disinterring of the political disputes that had to his mind so damaged him. But if reading commentary was painful, the New Republic was worse and can stand as one of the most direct assaults on Miller and his reputation through the guise of a review 
of his autobiography. It began with the cover of The New Republic, which featured a scowling Miller casting a distorted shadow of himself as a failed salesman. That cover promised an article, quote, on the pretensions of an American playwright. The title of the review was All My Sins. It was written by David Denby, a journalist and film critic, who identified Miller as the author of Death of a Salesman, which he described as a doggedly sincere and affecting minor work. For Denby, the book was unwieldy and blockish, a failure composed of glutinous sentences with an amorphous sluggish feel to it, which failed even to show a proper respect for logical order. Miller wrote it, time bends, jumping backwards and forwards, as he does in Death of a Salesman. Um, failed to show proper respect for logical order, since the reader of an artist's autobiography naturally expects chronological order. The writing, meanwhile, he said, is marred, sometimes destroyed, by outbreaks of rueful village elder sagacity and didacticism, while the book is characterised by the dry, workmanlike drone of his style. His plays, Denby asserts, were written in the now-vanished Broadway genre of ethical melodrama, of which Lillian Hellman had been the other master. As to his portrait of Monroe, he had simply failed to realise the truth that, quote, she was a great tease and he something of a blockhead. Miller was mating with the golden-haired dream, quite a treat for a Jewish boy, this man who hid the obvious Jewishness of the Lomans and other characters. And that last may have been a further cause for the animus, animus of some American critics who accused him of equivocation with respect to his Jewish Identity, Mary McCarthy did again, despite the fact that Arthur Miller wrote more plays about Jewish characters than any other American playwright that I know of and one was one of the first to address the Holocaust, a playwright in America. But it would be hard to imagine a more calculatedly offensive assault under the guise of criticism. Those who admired Miller, Denby explained, were assistant professors of drama for whom the stupidity of his moral assertions quote, will never go out of fashion in the classroom where great questions are always teachable. Miller, he concluded, is the perfect school playwright. The New Republic set aside five pages for this diatribe, which did indeed, as no doubt it was meant to do, shock Miller, who wondered at its venom, even as he had braced himself for his rejection. Then, as on repeated occasions over 30 years, he wondered whether he should simply stop writing. For one British critic, it was the autobiography of a playwright born in the wrong country. And this would become something of a commonplace in discussions of his work throughout the 1980s and 90s. Just how could a writer for whom the past presses closely upon the present, who sees art as a transforming mechanism, who distrusts the material, function in a country which treats all such propositions with suspicion. O'Neill despaired of American audiences responding to his modern tragedies. They were simply, O'Neill said, not compatible with a country dedicated to the pursuit of happiness, in which every disaster is a challenge and all days are nice. Rather than depress native audiences, O'Neill left his last plays to be produced in Sweden, where presumably they were already depressed. When Miller reviewed a collection of O'Neill's letters in which he despaired of America's commercial theatre and America's resistance to the tragic impulse, Miller embraced him as close kin. Certainly Miller now turned to Europe for his redemption. And perhaps it's not surprising that in 1991 he decided to open his new play, The Ride Down Mount Morgan, in England. 
It would have opened at the National, but there was a problem of dates, so we opened it in the West End. As it would assuredly not have opened on Broadway. And where was the National Theatre in America? Not Lincoln Centre. He even debated opening his 1994 play, Broken Glass, in England, and later regretted not having done so. Nor was it only in England. Uh, there were, incredibly, 137 German-language productions of his plays in the five years from 1997 to 2002. I asked him to send me the list, and this is what he faxed me. The situation in Britain and elsewhere stood in clear contrast to the American experience. The Golden Years, the play he wrote for the Federal Theatre in 1939 and had never been staged, was liberated from the air-conditioned seclusion of a Texas library and transmitted by BBC Radio before appearing as a television play. His 1944 failure, The Man Who Had All the Luck, was, as I said, staged by the Bristol Old Vic 50 years later and transferred to London. It's now an acknowledged part of his canon, being regularly staged a few months ago at the Lyceum in Edinburgh and last year in London. Virtually all of the later plays that failed in America succeeded in England. The American clock was a triumph at the National. The last Yankee broke box office records and ran for eight months in the West End. An enemy of the people likewise transferred to the West End. Broken glass had an abbreviated run in America and prompted withering reviews. In England, it won the Olivier Award as best play of the year and transferred to the West End. Speaking of the American production of Broken Glass, the critic John Simon in New York magazine noted that Arthur Miller may be the world's most overrated playwright, but even he could not have served up the jagged shards of broken glass without some hidden agenda under the banal plot and shoddy dialogue. Robert Brustein, in a review headed Separated by a Common Playwright, offered it as further evidence of Miller's, quote, plodding pedestrian style. Miller, he explained, didn't open broken glass in London, but I bet he wishes he had, since while he may not be able to arouse much admiration for his new plays in this country, he's a living monument in England. Broken Glass, as it turned out, he rightly suggested, may very well dazzle the critics and delight the public when it eventually is produced in London. Here it seems like just another spiral in a stumbling career. In England, reviews were positive. In the Sunday Times, John Peter welcomed it as a grand, harrowing play, deeply compassionate, darkly humorous, one of the great creations of the American theatre. He thought the National Theatre, quote, ought to be proud of its great production. Benedict Nightingale in the Times said of the figure of Gelberg, the central figure, you won't find a more sympathetic yet less sentimental piece of characterization in London. For Michael Billington in The Guardian, Miller had written a wise, humane, moving, complex, humanistic play. As Matt Wolfe, an American critic who lives in London, confessed, almost play by play, one can contrast a failed New York production with a successful British counterpart. The issue, interestingly enough, was taken up by John La, another American critic who lived in England, who drew attention to America's disregard for its playwrights. For the last 30 years, La said, Miller has been generally cold-shouldered by American critics and struggled to survive in the chilly commercial market, which meant that a modest success was no success at all. He was not, though, the only American playwright for whom this was true. 
Edward Albee's triumphant return to form, Three Tall Women, was commissioned by a theatre in Vienna. New York, having witnessed a succession of failures that drove him first to small regional theatres in America and then to work in Holland. Richard Nelson found a theatre in Britain, the Royal Shakespeare Company, when he couldn't in America. David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross opened in London, as did the cryptogram, in the case of the latter as a consequence of its director's suspicion of American newspaper reviewers, and in particular, the New York Times. Another American critic, who lives in England, uh, Rhoda Koenig, reviewing the British production for The Independent, opened her review with the question, why do the English love Arthur Miller? More especially since her, her opinion, Broken Glass offered only a limp and unconvincing narrative with wooden characters, which she characterised as city yokels afflicted with galloping naivety. It presented a grotesque caricature of lower-middle-class cla- Jewish coarseness. The following year, when Miller and his wife returned to Britain from a ma- for a major celebration of his 80th birthday, I have to say at my university, the Observer carried the heading, The Great Playwright Sticks in America's Craw, but not Ours. Harold Pinter, not uncharacteristically, suggested that the reason for his relative unpopularity in America was that there was, quote, a general tendency to regard him as severely radical. Any man who actually shows an intelligent concern for his fellows, for the society in which he lives, even in the society in which he lives, is in America, understandably, a communist. Harold Pinter's love for America is boundless. From the late 80s and through the 90s, the young Vic in London staged nine Miller plays. There were more productions of Miller plays at the National Theatre than by any other author, with the single exception of Shakespeare. When at the millennium a poll was conducted by the National of British playwrights, directors, actors, critics, to identify the most significant playwright of the 20th century, Miller came second to Beckett, but was the only playwright to have two of his plays in the top ten. Am I suggesting that the British theatre is superior, British audiences more discriminating, British critics um, more acute? It's true that when you've lost an empire, all you've got left is condescension. And there is perhaps a little bit of that in me. Miller thought that the answer lay in the centrality of subsidy in England, in actors who remained loyal to theatre, in the British love of language, its familiarity with plays which sought to engage the nature of society and the individual's place in it. He believed, in short, that Britain had a theatre culture. In America, actors, he said, see the theatre primarily as a springboard to television and film, making casting difficult, not least because actors have to make a choice. Theatre, at least in Miller's mind, being on the East Coast, film and television being on the West Coast. One of the advantages of not having much of a film industry is we don't have that dilemma in Britain. In America, a single reviewer could kill a play. If the New York Times review was not enthusiastic, it doesn't even have to be negative, if it's not enthusiastic, the closing notices can be published before midnight, while those at the opening night party at Sardis quickly begin to slip out of the door. In Britain, whose reviewers he thought superior, no reviewer has that power or, I suspect, wants it. There are here a handful of daily newspapers and, as many again, Sunday papers. Well, there are at the moment. In America, he once lamented, he had no theatre 
and no critic in his corner. In this country, he felt he had both. He had people who championed him and who frequently commanded theatres, like the National, like the Young Vic, like the Bristol Old Vic, like the West Yorkshire Playhouse, and so on. And he had audiences eager to embrace him. In America, Miller said, I had not the luck to fall in with people sufficiently at ease with psychopolitical themes to set them in a theatrical style, a challenge more often tackled in the British theatre. Besides, in Europe, it's not necessary to tell people that the past may burst into the present at any moment. In Europe, as you know, the dead are buried in shallow graves. Uh, borders are simply where the fighting last stopped. They are, they are marked in blood. Broken glass was rehearsed as shells fell on Sarajevo. And though the play was set in 1938 at the time of Kristallnacht, he himself invoked the genocide in Rwanda as well as the former Yugoslavia. The past is not dead. It's not even the past. Here was a writer who wanted to address an audience made up, as he said, of all the people who found himself in his own country addressing only a fraction of it, even as he spoke to an international audience at the same time. At first, he was the man who had all the luck. Later, he was a man whose luck appeared to have deserted him in terms of the reception of his new plays, who in his own country found himself celebrated only for work that he had written in an eight-year period between 1947 and 1955, an eight-year period of a career that actually lasted for 70 years. I think the pendulum had begun to swing in the last years of Miller's life, beginning with what was originally a regional production of Death of a Salesman in, in Chicago at the Goodman uh, with Brian Dennehy. And Miller was, in truth, I think, slow to notice that America did have a national theatre. It just wasn't in New York. It was in Chicago and Minneapolis and Hartford and all, all around the country. The first-class production of The Ride Down Mount Morgan with Patrick Stewart was better than the original that was staged in Britain, while Richard Eyre's Broadway production of The Crucible with Liam Neeson as John Proctor further added renewed interest in Miller. Resurrection Blues, his penultimate play, opened at the Guthrie, Minneapolis, in an excellent production, though it has still not reached New York even now, while his last play, Finishing the Picture, opened in Chicago, and it too has yet to reach New York, but it also hasn't been staged in this country. While the British production of Resurrection Blues was one of the most embarrassing experiences I've ever had in a theatre, it was directed by Robert Altman, whose work as a film director is substantially done in post-production. Unfortunately, there is no post-production in theatre. <laughs> so I think that in the last years of his life, there was evidence that America had re-engaged with Miller as he had never disengaged from it. In the end, he was one of the most American of writers who engaged in a conversation with his country. And if at times he wasn't heard with clarity or was passed over in favour of new trends and enthusiasm, he was always confident that his plays would find their moment and their audiences, and they have manifestly done so, and more quickly than I suspect he thought would be true. Because his earliest plays have now been performed and his late ones have now all had excellent productions, it's possible to see the shape and form of his career as a whole. And what emerges is not a resolute realist or a man enthralled to ideology, but a playwright with an expansive imagination, increasingly committed to experimentation, whose plays 
have succeeded in commanding attention in every country in the world, including, we can perhaps now say, his own. He is certainly an international playwright, but he remains an American playwright, son of an illiterate immigrant father who grew up to articulate the anxieties and hopes of a culture which, like Willie Loman, had a longing to lay claim to an identity, even as he suspected it might, like Willie, be writing its name on a block of ice on a summer's day. Thanks.